Play ball. Round the internet we go, where we end up no one knows. Sit back and enjoy the show, down the baseball rabbit hole, down the baseball rabbit hole. Hey everybody, welcome to the baseball rabbit hole. The podcast where I ask a question of the internet and follow the rabbit holes that it opens up in the World Wide Web. I'm your host, Michael Cotton, and today I'm wondering what happened to all the home run balls that broke the single season record? If you are listening in order, then you know that the last episode was all about the single season home run record. For every time that record was broken, there was a ball that ended up outside of the field of play. So what happened to those balls? The reason this is a question is because if a fan catches a home run ball, that ball then becomes the property of that fan. This isn't the case in other sports. In the NBA, you have to return the basketball if it bounces into the stands. And in football, the ball has to be returned to the refs unless it was specifically thrown out by a player. Also, when players do give footballs to fans during games, the NFL hits them with a $7,000 fine for the first offense and a $12,000 fine for the second offense. Those are some expensive balls. The NHL does allow fans to keep the pucks that make their way over the glass, but that's probably because it would be really insensitive to take away the puck when it probably seriously injured the person who got it. Anyway, baseball doesn't require fans to give the ball back, but they used to. Back in the early days of baseball, they didn't swap out balls constantly like they do now. The umpires would keep balls in play until they were literally falling apart. This is how we got the term, hit the cover off the ball. Because that would actually happen sometimes when the ball had been used for too long. In the early 20th century, a fan that caught a home run ball or foul ball would get a visit from an usher or a security guy who would take the ball back and return it to the umpires for use. Not all the balls would be given back, of course, and this could cause problems. In 1921, the New York Giants ejected Reuben Berman from a game for refusing to give back a foul ball. That's all well and good for an adult. But when it comes to kids, things are a bit different. And there was an 11-year-old Phillies fan that you can thank if you've ever caught a ball at a game. In 1922, Robert Cotter, whose nickname was Tuffy Reds, caught a foul ball and refused to give it up. The security guy dragged the kid away because even in 1922, Philadelphia had a jail cell in their ballpark. I'm just kidding. Sort of. Old Tuffy Reds refused to give the ball back, even when being threatened by the team management. So the owners decided to make an example out of the kid and hopefully set a legal precedent. They had him arrested on charges of larceny. The courthouse closed down before Tuffy's mom could get there to bail him out. So the 11-year-old had to spend the night in jail. The next morning, the judge not only ruled in the favor of the child, Robert Cotter, but also admonished the Phillies' ownership and management for having a kid arrested over a baseball. Tuffy's mother took the story to the papers, and it went 
the 1920s version of viral. All the big city papers on the East Coast published this story, and the Phillies were made out to be the villains in all of them. Teams across Major League Baseball didn't want to have that kind of PR nightmare, so they all changed their rules to allow fans to keep any ball that went into the stands. 76 years later, the Phillies finally made things right with old Tuffy Reds, Cotter, by making him the fan of the century in 1998, where he was given a baseball signed by the entire team. So now that we know why fans get to keep baseballs, let's find out what happened to those home run balls. But first, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor, which also happens to be me. Hey, everybody. You know what this podcast needs? More listeners like you. If you want to help me out, please share this podcast around to your friends and let them all know that they should subscribe as well. Another way to support the podcast would be to give me a five-star rating somewhere on the internet wherever podcasts are rated. Thanks, and now back down the rabbit hole. Now that we know why baseball fans get to keep baseballs at the games, let's get into what happened to some of the most famous baseballs in the history of the game. So I was going to go in chronological order, starting with Ruth and ending with Judge. The story is a little less sad if we hit the reverse button. So we're going to go the other direction and start with Judge. Aaron Judge hit home run number 62 in the 161st game of the 2022 season, which coincidentally was the same game that Maris broke the record as well. Judge's home run happened in Arlington, Texas versus the Texas Rangers. A Rangers fan, Corey Humans of Dallas, Texas, caught the ball that night and was immediately escorted out of the stadium for his own protection. The only thing that can be said as concrete fact about this home run is that Judge's home run is the American League record for home runs in a single season. This makes the value of the ball very interesting because some view it as the seventh most home runs ever hit in a single season, while others view it as the true record for single season home runs. It seems as if Mr. Humans has decided to sell the ball rather than give it back to Aaron Judge because it is currently valued around $2 million. Currently, it is up in the air whether he takes the guaranteed offer of around $2 million or it goes to auction where it could possibly reach $3 million. Whenever you're listening to this, it's probably already happened, so maybe you can go back and find out how much he sold that ball for. Judge was asked about the ball after the game, and he just said, it'd be great to get it back, but that's a souvenir for a fan. They made a great catch out there, and they've got every right to it. Everybody knows who got Judge's ball, but it's not always so clear-cut. Let's head back 21 years to 2001 at Pac Bell Park in San Francisco to October 7th when Barry Bonds hit his final home run of the season to run the record up to 73. Ball number 71 had broken the three-year-old record, but 73 is the home run that everyone has to chase. The ball flew out to Alex Popov, 
who claimed that he caught the ball. But a melee ensued in which a bunch of fans fought for the ball. Popov accused a different fan, Patrick Hayashi, of pulling the ball out of his mitt. But Hayashi claims the ball was rolling free at the bottom of the pile of fans when he got it. This led to two years of court battles to determine ownership of home run ball number 73. Ultimately, a San Francisco judge laid down a King Solomon decision by forcing the sale of the ball with the money to be split between the two baseball fans. In June of 2003, the ball finally made it to auction and was purchased by Todd McFarlane for $450,000. Some had estimated the ball to be worth three times that much, but the legal battle, the ongoing steroid rumors, and Barry Bonds being a bit unpopular kind of drove the price of the ball down. It was a different story in 1998. Mark McGuire was insanely popular with the media and fans. Everyone was still turning a blind eye to how massive these ballplayers had recently gotten, and the record being broken was 37 years old, not 3 years old. 26-year-old Phil Ozerski was the lucky fan that caught number 70 that year. Although everyone knew the ball was going to be worth a lot of money, and Ozerski was making just 30 grand a year, his first thought was to actually give the ball back to McGuire. The Cardinals organization offered a signed bat, ball, and jersey for the home run ball, which is kind of like offering three pennies for a $10 bill. Despite the low ball offer, Ozerski was up for it if he could just get one more thing. He wanted to meet Big Mac himself. That's it. That's all he wanted. Home run ball number 70 for the low, low price of one signed bat, one ball, one jersey, and a meeting with Mark McGuire when they made the exchange. Mark McGuire said no. The Cardinals and their lovable legend refused to negotiate with Ozerski. So Phil took his ball and went home. Three months later, he sold that ball at auction for $3.05 million to none other than Todd McFarlane. Sounds familiar, right? Well, more about him in a moment. Despite the ridiculous stance the Cardinals had taken with Ozerski, the new millionaire wasn't holding grudges. Soon after getting his money, he gave $70,000 to their charity, Cardinals Care as well as another 140000 total to the Leukemia Society and the American Cancer Society. Not meeting Mark McGuire might have been the luckiest thing that ever happened to that guy. Before I get to the next record-breaking baseball, I think we need to talk about the guy that has a ton of record-breaking baseballs. Todd McFarlane made his money in the comic book business. Yes, he was the writer and owner of the character Spawn, which made him, obviously, tons and tons of money. Now, that's not all he did, but, hey, that's what he's most famous for. So, I'm here to talk about his baseballs, so let's move on to that. Yes, the same guy that bought Barry Bonds number 73 
also already owned Meguiar's number 70. He had also purchased Meguiar's 67th, 68th, and 69th homers, nice, from 1998, as well as Sammy Sosa's number 61 and 66 from that same year. All told, McFarlane spent about $5.8 million for the Bonds ball, all the McGuire balls, and the Sammy Sosa balls. Due to everything that has happened in regards to the steroid era of baseball, all of those balls together might not be worth even $1 million today. Okay, that tiny rabbit hole was interesting, but hey, Todd McFarlane never caught any of those balls. So let's get back to that story. In 1961, 19-year-old truck driver from Brooklyn, Mr. Sal Durante, was on a date with his future wife, Rosemary. It was a game that she had paid for since Durante couldn't afford the $2.50 tickets. Durante was in the right place at the right time, and he caught Roger Maris's number 61 barehanded out in the right field bleachers. He was given the opportunity to go meet Roger Maris after the game. Durante was just going to give the ball back to Maris, but the slugger had a different plan. Unlike McGuire not allowing Ozerski to come near him with that ball, Roger Maris actually welcomed the kid in, and when Sal Durante offered to give it back to him, Roger Maris said, Keep it, kid. Put it up for auction. Somebody will pay you a lot of money for that ball. He'll keep it a couple of days, and then he'll give it to me. Sal Durante did what he was told, and a California restaurateur named Sam Gordon was the middleman who gave Durante $5,000 before eventually returning the ball to Maris. Five grand at the time would be about 50 grand now. But that wasn't all he got. Maris was totally cool with Durante. Again, completely different situation from McGuire. Maris signed Sal's ticket stub. Then he got a ball on which Maris, Sal, and Tracy Stollard, the Red Sox pitcher who gave up to Homer, all signed. Then Maris offered the kid a cigarette and lit that cigarette with his own personal Zippo which he then gave to Sal Durante. But it doesn't end there, folks. In 1976, Durante got to return to Yankee Stadium to throw out the first pitch on opening day. And on the 25th anniversary of home run number 61, Sal and Rosemary were asked back to celebrate. Then 25 years after that, Sal Durante returned again for the 50th anniversary of breaking the Babes record to deliver the same ball he'd caught 50 years earlier to the Maris family, who then delivered the ball back to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Sal Durante caught one ball when he was 19 and got to enjoy the fruits of that for the next 50 years. And now for the final ball, Babe Ruth's number 60 and what might be the birth of the ball hawk. Joe Forner, a truck driver from the Bronx, went to the game specifically to try and catch a home run from Babe Ruth. Truly Warner 
who owned a hat shop of the same name, of course, was offering $100 for the next home run Babe Ruth hit. Forner thought that sounded like a great idea, and he went to the stadium and found his seat at what he considered an optimum spot to catch a home run, and he sat down. Well, apparently, Forner knew exactly what he was doing because the great Bambino dropped a bomb right in Forner's hands. After the game, Forner got to go in and meet the babe who signed the ball, dated it, and put the number 60 on it. He then gave the ball back to Forner, who promptly sold it to Truly Warner for $100. The very next week, Truly Warner started selling hats with a picture of that baseball on them. Truly Warner kept that ball, and when he died in 1948, he passed number 60 down to his son. And in 1973, Douglas Warner donated the ball to the Baseball Hall of Fame, where it sits today. I personally think the story of Sal Durante is the most heartwarming of this group of stories, but it was Joe Forner that took me down the next rabbit hole. But before we get there, we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to tell you something that I probably already told you once before. Anyway, we're going to do it again. I'll be right back. Hey, this is the part of the show where I would normally tell you, go to my Patreon and support the show. But here's the thing. I screwed up the Patreon one time, so I went back to do it again. And when I was doing it, I thought to myself, I really shouldn't be doing a Patreon because I don't put these shows out very often. And it really just doesn't seem to make sense. So, if you really want to support the show monetarily, hit me up on PayPal or Venmo at mcotton2019. That's the same for both of them. And you can give me money there if you'd like. Otherwise, if you really want to do something Patreon style, go to Patreon for Sonranto. S-O-N-R-A-N-T-O. And that's where I do my other podcast. You can give money there, and that would also support what I do. This week, I want to shout out Bernie Barron for uh, reaching out to me on PayPal and giving me a little money for doing this show. I really appreciate it, Bernie. And also, of course, Sean O'Hare and David Elliott, who gave me money previously. Please, be like these three wonderful humans. Thank you. Now back down the rabbit hole. When Joe Forner went into Yankee Stadium that day and found his specific spot so he could catch the Babe's bomb, he just may have invented what we all now know as the ball hawk. If Joe Forner created ball hawking, it's the guys outside of Wrigley Field who perfected ball hawking. I mean, the term ball hawk was actually coined on the corner of Waveland and Kenmore Avenues on the north side of Chicago. There are only a few ballparks in the major leagues where catching a home run outside of the stadium can even happen. For many, many years, ballparks were big, circular, multi-sport monstrosities and domes, so balls would never get all the way out of the field. So Wrigley was really the only place to ball hawk. For decades, this subset of the bleacher bumps have stood out in the street picking off long homers. And if it was the other team that hit it, sometimes they even throw it back. 
The ball hawks that hang out there all the time have an almost extrasensory perception of when balls are going to fly clear out of Wrigley for them to collect. They can tell by the crack of the bat some 400 feet away if the ball has a chance to get to the street, and they move quickly to grab it. Everyone is out there having fun, but make no mistake, being a ball hawk is a contact sport. The best ball hawks catch the homer in the air, which cuts down on the danger. But once the ball hits the ground and bounces, it's a free-for-all. In the heady days of the late 90s, with Sammy Sosa slamming 60s every year, and the Cubs winning divisions, Ballhawk Corner was as crowded as being inside the ballpark. As the steroid days disappeared and the Cubs teams became bad again, the crowds died down. But the true Ballhawks remained. In 2015, the Ricketts family installed a giant video scoreboard in left field that severely cut down the number of balls that clear the friendly confines. It was as if the Ricketts were purposefully trying to get rid of the Ballhawks. But they are a hardy crowd, and even though they don't get as many home runs, they still get some, so they stick around. The Ballhawks are such a part of the Wrigley experience, they even had a documentary Ballhawks filmed about them with Bill Murray as the narrator. If you've never been to the corner of Waveland and Kenmore, stop by the next time you go to Wrigley Field. They'll still be out there. They'll be drinking beers and talking baseball. And if the timing is right, you just might see them perk up and start eyeing the sky over Wrigley as they track their prize right into the glove. There's probably more to say, but really the documentary Ballhawks does it way better than I ever could, so I just suggest you go and watch that. And that's going to be the end of the rabbit hole this episode. I asked the question, who caught all those record-breaking home run balls? And I found out, amazingly. I got all the names, all the stories. It was pretty cool. Plus, I found out about Tuffy Reds which is one of the coolest 11-year-olds I have ever heard about, and I think that's going to be enough for me. So, until next time, you keep rounding those bases. You're out! As always, the baseball rabbit hole was written by Michael Cotton. It was recorded by Michael Cotton. It was edited by Michael Cotton. A bunch of other stuff was done by Michael Cotton. There was a lot of research done by Michael Cotton. Sometimes I did a couple of push-ups. I did some sit-ups. You know, I'm trying to get in good shape. All that stuff. Uh, The mixing was done by the computer program that I use. And, of course, the theme song by the inimitable... Danny Rocket. Take it away, Danny. Round the internet we go, where we end up no one knows. Sit back and enjoy the show, down the baseball rabbit hole, down the baseball rabbit hole.